You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, it's Leslie Ann. So glad to have you here. In Bible study this week, we talked about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, and the believer's new identity as a member of God's family. Our place in that family means that we're called to live by God's standards, which are altogether higher and holier than the world's. For more information on Our Ladies Bible Study here in Brandon, Mississippi, visit LeslieAnnJones.com. So this is 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Father, we just come before you today, and we are so thankful for your word and for your truth, God. I pray that you would speak to us through your word during this time, God, that you would send your spirit to help us to understand and to see and to know your truth, God. I pray that um, you would be honored and glorified by everything that happens here, and it's here and that we pray these things. Amen. So last week in that passage that we discussed... We learned about the believer's hope, how we have been born again into this new family. And as members of the new family, we have hope for a future, what? Inheritance, yes, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And that future hope is meant to encourage us through the darkness that we live in now during our period of exile here on earth. And today, Peter is going to take that a step further and say, okay, you have been born again into this new family. Now, what does that mean? Now what? And so he turns from this very deep theological section to more practical implications of that theology. This is true, therefore do this. And, and that's how a lot of the letters in the New Testament are structured. They give the theology, and then they give the ethical applications for it. Um, that's why when you know we talk about ethics and things like that, getting your thinking straight on an issue will change your behavior, or at least it ought to. Right thinking leads to right behavior. 
And so that's what Peter is starting with. He's saying, you are now members of a new family. You're part of the people of God. You're part of, part of his family. And this is what it means to be a member of the family of God. So when I started thinking about that and families and differences, because every family is different, I can tell you I was a shoemake growing up, and the shoemakes are very different from the Joneses, of which I am a part now. And I could tell you about some of those differences, but I thought that an example that we could all understand is maybe what it was like for Meghan Markle or Kate, what was her name before? Middleton, to marry into the royal family, because I'm pretty sure that it was quite different from the lives that they led before. Have any of you ever seen those articles on Facebook or somewhere else that's like Meghan Markle's royal protocol faux pas? You know, like, how did she mess up? Like, I'm a sucker for all of those kind of things. Like, I will click on it every time (laughs) because I want to know what she did wrong. (laughs) Like, what was it? And it may just be that, you know, her shoes were the wrong color or she like didn't stick her pinky up or whatever when she was drinking her tea it's never any kind of big thing but you know there's something about the royal family that fascinates us commoners how many of you watched the weddings we want to know about their wedding dresses and what it looks like and what it's like to be a member of the royal family it's fascinating right because they are different from us they do life differently than we do they have all these rights and privileges that we we don't and can never even imagine having, they are set apart, not just by their status and their titles, but um, by their conduct, too. They are royal, and they act like it. Do you get where I'm going here? So to maintain this distinction between royal and common, there are all sorts of protocols that they have to follow. And it covers all sorts of things from like, you know, the kinds of clothes you wear, the way you sit, the way you hold your teacup, the order that you sit at a table, who comes in the room first, you know, all those sorts of things. But also the rules regarding the way they act around the queen. They defer to the queen in everything. If you happen to be sitting at the table with the Queen of England, which I hope that you have brushed up on your manners first, but if you did, when she finished her meal and put down her fork, you would be done too, whether you were finished with your food or not. She's done, so the meal is over. When she stands up, everyone else stands up. You don't turn your back on the queen ever for any reason. She is the first to enter a room, and even her husband, who she has been married to for 72 years now, must always follow at least two steps behind her. He never walks in front of her. So y'all look when you get home. You look at those pictures of Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth and see he is always behind her. There was one photo I saw that was super awkward where they were clearly at some outdoor event where there was like a tent with a curtain And because she had to be in front, it meant that he was standing behind her and his whole face was hidden by, you know, the loop of the curtain. Like he couldn't see him at all, but he had to be behind her. So that's the way that it had to be. So I would say that we could all stand to learn a few things from them in the way that they behave because their identity is wrapped up in who they are as members of the royal family. And it affects every aspect of their lives. There is not a part of Meghan Markle's life now that is the same as it was before she married Prince Harry. 
everything changed because she has this new identity and she is no longer Meghan Markle, star of suits. Now, what's her official title now? I really don't know. Duchess of Sussex. Everything has changed for her. So our new birth into the family of God should affect us in the same way and change every aspect of our lives. The problem is that so often we try to hold on to who we used to be and forget about who we are now, who we have become. But our place in God's family means that we are called to live by his standards, which are altogether higher and holier than the world's. And so that's where Peter starts, and he's going to call his readers, those original believers, and also us, to these standards. And these are kind of marks of the believer's life. This is what believers look like. And the first one is that he calls them to hope. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how many of you have done a Bible study before that asks the question, when you see a therefore, what do you ask? What's the, say it out loud, Miss Tommy Lou. What is it therefore? That's right. What's the therefore there for? Why is it there? So, okay. Why is it there? That's right. Therefore, in light of this great inheritance that we have, in light of these, all these things that are true, we who have salvation that has been received from these prophets who longed for it, angels wanted to look into it. We are the ones who have inherited this. This is how you should act. Because these things are true, this should also be true. If then. So he's making a shift from the theological claims to those applications like we said earlier. So where does he start? What is the first thing he says? Therefore, preparing your minds. Preparing your minds. Change does not begin with simply changing your behavior was saying, "Mm, I really struggle with eating donuts. I should not eat donuts anymore. That doesn't really stop me from eating donuts, right? But maybe reading an ingredient list and knowing exactly how many calories are in each of those donuts, because I don't eat just one, usually. It's usually two or three, to be honest. Um, And then I would know that that was enough calories for like an entire day. That might change me. That knowledge might. And so what Peter is saying here is that change, real change, begins with right thinking. So right thinking leads to right desires, which leads to right actions. He's saying, hey, get your head in the game. The language that he uses here, preparing your minds for action, is the same language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, gird up your loins. So he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. And do y'all understand that imagery do you know what that's saying so think about the types of clothing that they used to wear what what kind of clothes did jesus wear did he wear pants robes right so have you ever tried to run in an evening gown it's kind of not very practical right so to gird up your loins would be to like gather the robe and tuck it into your belt to make it pants so that you could then move with ease around a battlefield. And he's saying, get your mind ready because this is a battle and you're not going to be ready for it if you don't do the work. You got to know who you are and you've got to know who God is and you've got to know what that means. It's a battle out there. Pay attention. He calls them to be sober-minded. So what is the difference 
mind-wise in thinking between someone who is sober and someone who is drunk? Clarity. Yes, drunk people make bad choices. They have bad judgment. Yes, they do not react well. Whether that is an overreaction or lack of reaction. Anything else? When he calls them to be sober-minded, he wants them to be very clear in their thinking. This is something that we neglect a lot in the church. We, women especially, make a really big deal about how we feel. This passage spoke to me and made me think, you know, really hit me, which that's not a bad thing. Sometimes it does hit us in the heart. Sometimes it does, and that is good. But it is not the most important thing. Knowing who God is and knowing who we are in him changes us from the inside out. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Transformation starts with the mind. That's exactly where Peter starts. He points then, after covering that head game, He then points again to the hope that we spent so much time talking about last week. Hope for that inheritance. Hope for our heavenly home. Hope for a future that's better than the life that we have here on earth where we will never be fully at home. So how are they to hope? Hope a little bit. Hope sometimes. Hope fully. Fully on the grace that is to come. So I don't know what sorts of things you place your hopes in. I to be honest, place mine in the size of our savings account because that feels secure to me, makes me feel good about where we are. And like if some kind of horrible thing happened, if God forbid Dennis lost his job or, you know, something happened, that bank account makes me feel secure. So my hope is good there. What are some of the other things we place our hope in? What about people? Yes. Yes, good health. There are all sorts of things in this world that we place our hope in. And Peter is saying everything in this world perishes. But the grace that is to come, the hope we have in Christ, it's imperishable. It's not going to fade away. So place your hope fully there. Our hope is not in anything of this world, but it's in the next one. Always. And keeping our eyes fixed on where we're headed, our mind clear. And watching where we're going, rather than our current circumstances, motivates us to be the kind of people that we are called to be, which is what Peter covers next. We are called to be obedient and holy, a call to holiness. So God's people are marked by hope, but they are also marked by holiness. Let's read verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So as obedient children in our home, our children are not always obedient, but we expect our children to obey so that if, you know, I'm walking in a parking lot with my kids not holding my hands and I say, stop, I want them to stop, right? Like, I don't want them to ask why. I don't want them to weigh my command over what they wish they would. No, 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 no. I told you to do that, so you need to stop. So I expect my children to obey right away, 
all the way with a happy heart. That does not happen as often as it should. To be clear, we have not mastered this. And the truth is that as God's child, I haven't mastered it either. Because sometimes God's commands rankle a little bit. They do not sit well with me all the time. This is something that's a little bit unpopular because how many times have you heard people say, Christianity is not about rules, it's a relationship. And so there's this implication that if we have a relationship with Jesus, then the rules don't matter. But is that true? No, it is both rules and relationship. Now, I don't know how many of you watch The Bachelorette. (laughs) I'm not going to ask. (laughs) Wouldn't want to call you out in that way. I don't watch it. Dennis is the one who told me about this, actually, because he saw headlines on Twitter. He's not on any kind of social media, but Twitter, he follows, like, all the Mississippi State stuff and, apparently, news outlets. On The Bachelorette this summer, summer? I don't know, a month, a month or two ago? I'm not exactly sure how long ago it was. Um, The girl on the show who, you know, is testing out all these guys to see which one is going to be her perfect match, she was a professing Christian. Have any of you heard this? Do you know? Molly knows where I'm going. Okay. So she was a professing Christian, and there were, like, huge headlines, big deal made out of this because there was one of the guys on the show was also a Christian, and he confronted her at dinner one night on their date, and he basically said, hey, if you have had sex with any of the other guys on the show, I'm out. Like, I don't want to be with you, which, side note, it's terrible that this is entertainment in our country. It's terrible. But her response was very telling of the attitude of a lot of Christians toward sin today. This is what she said. Um, Well, basically, she yelled at him and said, I've had sex and Jesus still loves me. Okay, so there was that. But then later, in defending what she said to reporters, because it turned into this huge thing, she said, regardless of anything I've done, I can do whatever. I sin daily, and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed, and if the Lord doesn't judge me, and it's all forgiven, then no other man, woman, animal, or anything can judge me. That's what she said. So I just read that to acknowledge that the culture that we live in has a very permissive attitude towards sin, even in those who say they believe in Jesus Christ. But the testimony of Scripture is quite clear. If you are in Christ, you are called to live according to God's commandments. You're called to obey and to pursue holiness, not to be like the world but to be like him, to be like God. It says, as he who called you is holy, be holy. Unless parents are really, really bad, it is natural for children to want to be like their parents. My girls both love to get into my closet, drives me nuts, because they never leave it the way that it was when they went in there. But they like to put on my shoes and put on my jewelry and play in my makeup and do all the things. Why? So they can be like me. My girls want to be like me. Those of you who have children can understand that too. They, they want to be like me. And sometimes I see them doing things that are exactly, oh my gosh, she got that from me. And sometimes it's not good. 
Like that was not a good habit that you picked <laughs> up there. Can anybody relate? Right. So Peter calls us to be holy in all of our conduct. Why? Because that's what God is like. To be holy literally means to be set apart, to be different. So God has called us out from the passions of our former ignorance. He has called us away from this life of following whatever feels good and doing whatever your heart desires. Follow your heart because your heart won't lead you astray. That's what the world says, right? But that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says there is no one righteous. No, not one. So we cannot trust our hearts to lead us in the right direction. We have to rely on something outside of ourselves. And that truth comes from the word of God, where we see who God is. The character of God is revealed. And in seeing God, we see what is right. And there is no one better to be like than to be like him. That is what is right. To follow the Lord. God is holy. And as his children, we bear his image in the world. We are different from the world, or we should be. Our friends, our neighbors, the people we, you know, work with, or other moms that we sit with at the soccer field, or whoever it is that we interact with, ought to know that we are different. We ought not look like everybody else. Why? Because we belong to the Lord. We are his and our lives should reflect it. So we should be holy in everything. It says be holy in all of your conduct. Be set apart. Be different. Don't follow the ways of the world. Follow the ways of the Lord. So when it's talking about all of your conduct, it means all of your conduct. All of your relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your friends. In the way you handle your money, your savings accounts, your givings, what you spend your money on, how you use the resources that God has given you, including your time. How do you spend your time? What are you advancing with your time? Are you binge watching shows on Netflix late at night when you should be sleeping? Or are you sleeping so that you can be well rested to go back into the world the next day and serve the Lord? How are you holy in everything you do? Or are the choices you're making regarding your family and your money and your time and your service, do they look just like everybody else's? So what is setting us apart from others? As God's children, we are to be holy because he is holy. And to be like him is the best way possible to be. Peter also calls them to a holy fear. This is our favorite section, right? We love this part. Verses 17 through 19. He says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Doesn't that just give you the warm fuzzies? Probably not. Not, not really. Quite the opposite. Um, so what is Peter saying here, and why is he saying it? That was one of the questions that you talked about in your small groups, and you may have had a much better answer than I do. I don't know. Well, first of all, Peter is assuming that they know God as their father. 
he is saying, hey, you are God's children. You call him your father. But then he reminds them that God isn't just their father. He's also an impartial judge. And then he goes on to say that because God is an impartial judge, that basically he's going to judge accordingly. He's not going to look the other way. Because he is like that, then you should conduct yourself with fear and trembling throughout the entirety of your earthly life. So he's calling them to a higher level of respect and reverence and to a level of holy fear and all that will change the way they live in the here and now. We spend a lot more time in the church talking about God's grace and his love and his mercy. And all those things are true than we do about his judgment because none of us really like the idea of being judged. And we know that ultimately Jesus has paid the price for our sins. And so that ultimate final judgment, we know that it has been dealt with already. But what we tend to forget or pretend isn't there is the ongoing level of discipline that happens in a good home. I mean, we discipline our children. How many of you grew up in a home where you were disciplined? Did you doubt your parents' love for you? But you know, when my father disciplined us, and it happened more often than it probably should have had to, I never doubted whether or not he loved me. I knew that he loved me. And then I knew he was doing it because he loved me. He was disciplining me. So... All of that to say, um, when the Lord disciplines us, it is with the same view in mind. Let me read you this passage from Hebrews chapter 12. It starts in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all of you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Hebrews says that discipline from the Lord is one of the ways that you can know that you belong to him. He does not discipline those whom he does not love. If you find yourself on the receiving end of the Lord's discipline, you know that it is because you are part of his family. He disciplines those who belong to him. So I was afraid of my dad growing up. I knew that punishment was going to be swift and severe if I ever stepped out of line or behaved in a way that was contrary to the way he expected me to behave. He had expectations for me, and if I did not live up to them, then I was going to have to account for it. Now, he was fair. He always gave me a chance to explain myself, but that didn't mean that my explanations always held water. You know, in the end, he was my father, and he would not be a good father if he was not also a just judge. The same thing is true with God, our Father. He would not be a very good God if he looked the other way and allowed us to carry on in our sin while ignoring the cost of that sin. 
the reason that we defer to the Lord and we fear Him and we follow His ways is because we know that ultimately He is for our good and the fear we have for Him. Fear is a legitimate motivation, y'all. I want my children to be afraid of me. They are not as afraid of me as they should be. They are more afraid of Dennis than they are of me. So there's a, do you need me to tell your daddy? That comes out. Sometimes, well, guess what? God knows. He doesn't need telling. You cannot hide from him. But he will judge us someday. And it matters. It matters because we are his children. So if you want to, like, think of it in a different way, instead of being fear of the Lord, we, maybe you can think of it as wanting to please him, you know? Instead of fear of displeasing him, you can flip it on the other side into a desire to please him. We live our lives in a way that gives honor and glory to him, in a way that reveres him and points to him as Lord and Savior. We defer to his judgment. We follow his ways because our freedom, the pardon that we will receive on that ultimate day of judgment came at an unimaginably high cost. That's what this verse says. It says that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Our sin is costly, and we will stand before the judgment throne of God someday. But we are going to be pardoned for that sin. But y'all, it is not easy to stand in front of a judge for whatever reason. I told y'all I had jury duty last week. Spoiler alert, Caroline's husband was the defense attorney. Therefore, I was not selected for the jury. Because when they asked how that relationship might affect my bias, I said, well... It might be a little awkward at church, sometimes, maybe, perhaps. So anyway, but regardless, I was not on trial at that moment. But y'all, when I had to stand up in front of the judge and answer his questions about my life and my work, and let me tell you, they were not, I mean, I'm in a room with 50, no, yep, probably about 50 other people, and he asked me how much money I made doing what I do. Yes! I mean, he wanted me to give an account for my work. And y'all, I was nervous because I wanted to answer the questions right so I could sit down and pass the microphone to the next person. And that is a human judge on earth. And I was not on trial. So how are we going to be when we stand before the Lord someday? And he asks us those questions and calls us to account with what we have done with the life that Christ's blood bought for us. This life that you have was purchased with the blood of Christ. It was not free. It cost something. And you are going to be held accountable for it. Don't take your salvation for granted. It is a gift. Yes, you did not have to pay the cost, but that does not mean it was free. It cost something. Do not squander the Lord's investment in you by carrying on in your sin. That's what Peter is saying. You will stand before him. Be 
be able to stand up straight with your shoulders back and your head up high, knowing that the life that you lived brought honor to his name. Do not waste this life by carrying on in the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers. He has ransomed us from those things. He wants us to be different. So verse 20, he has just finished talking about Jesus Christ, whose blood paid our ransom. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So the same God that we call Father is the same God who is the judge who will rule the living and the dead, but he is also the same God who is our Savior. He is our Savior. Peter's pointing back to the work that God has already done and says, yes, fear him as judge, but what he does is for your good. Have you ever noticed how many people love Jesus but don't really so much love God, like in the Old Testament and stuff? stuff like that I say oh he's so wrathful and angry in the Old Testament but the New Testament is so full of love and warm fuzzies and God is love and Jesus came to die for our sins and oh I just love Jesus so much but not so much you know God and like Ezekiel or something like that but Peter here is saying that You can't have Jesus without God. They are a package deal, one and the same, along with the Holy Spirit, and that it was God, the God of the Old Testament, God the judge, God the Father, God the just, who knew, he foreknew before the beginning of time, Jesus, and planned for him to come to save us. So in last week's passage, There was also a reference to something being someone, being foreknown. Who was it? It was us. In the introduction to the book in verse 2, he's talking to the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. So we were known by God before the beginning of time. But so also was Jesus. He is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He is not a plan B. It was always God's plan to send him into the world to save us from our sins. And this God who made this plan and sent the son, he's the one that we trust. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. So for those of us who believe, we need to get comfortable with the parts of his character that make us uncomfortable because God is the one who is the author of our faith. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He's the one who raised him up and put him in glory. And he is the one that our faith and our hope rest in. God is who God says he is. Even the parts that make us uncomfortable, we need to get used to it and humble ourselves before him and treat him with the awe and reverence and fear that he is due. And then the last thing that Peter calls the believers to in this section, he calls them to love one another. So there's kind of some tricky language going on here in verse 22, especially let's read through it. And then 
I'll kind of tell you what I think. So, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So I believe that in this section, we know that he's already talking to believers in the family of God. This is a letter to believers. And he's probably talking here not about purifying your souls by good behavior and obedience, but I think he's talking about our growth and moral purity post-conversion. So he's talking about this ongoing life of holiness that he has just called them to in the prior verses. Does that make sense? He's saying, now that you are in this family, now that you believe God and have been adopted and call him as father, you know, purify yourselves, work at getting better, grow in holiness. But he's saying we should be growing in our obedience to the truth. And the more that we grow in our ability to obey God's commands, to resist the power of sin in our lives, the more holy we become. And that's what he's aiming at. And one of the natural outcomes of growing in holiness is growing love for fellow believers. Did that make sense? He is saying that we have all been born again into the same family. Each one of us in this room who have very different backgrounds, very different family situations growing up, different life stages now, different work experiences, and you name it, in a room of this size, there has been all kinds of stuff. Miscarriage, divorce, abuse, grief, hardship, cancer, pain, all sorts of differences in us. Some of us were raised in extremely legalistic families. Some of us were raised in families that would never darken the door of a church. We come from all sorts of different backgrounds. We have different political views. Believe it or not, all Christians don't think the same way or vote the same way. We have different ideas on what direction the church should go, what we should eat for dinner, There are all sorts of things that divide in the church. Worship style, anyone? And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But what he's saying is each one of us have been born again into this family, not with perishable seed, but with imperishable seed. So what he's saying is you are stuck with one another. And maybe you should like get used to each other and start loving one another because newsflash, you're going to be with each other forever. So I hope you like each other. Get started now, he's saying. It is the natural result of the Holy Spirit's work in a believer's life is for us to grow in our love for one another because these are people who are like us. Other people who have been called out from the world. Other people who understand what it's like to be different and to be holy, to pursue holiness, to try anyway. These are our people. And we ought to love one another. Because this family of God is every bit as imperishable as the word of God. 
God's word stands forever. That's what it says. The word of the Lord remains forever. God's word stands and so does his people. This is the gospel. This is the good news that was preached to us who believe. That God's word is permanent and irrevocable. It's alive and it's active and it's even now at work as we know it and it transforms our minds and changes us from the inside out so that we may be the people that God has created us to be. People who are full of hope. People who pursue holiness. People who have a holy and right fear of the Lord. And people who love one another. If we do those things, think about how countercultural it really would be if each one of us was marked in those ways, how different our lives would be from the rest of the world and how we may point others to the Lord through that. Father, I thank you so much for your word, God, that it convicts us, Lord, and fills us with your truth, God, so that it may take root in our minds and in our hearts and do its work there, that we may become people who glorify you and point to you in every aspect of our lives. Father, I pray for each of the women in this room, God, that you would give us the courage to be your people in a world where it is not popular to pursue holiness, where it is not acceptable to honor you above all else. God, I pray that you would cultivate in us a love for one another that you would draw us together in ways that, Lord, that point to your goodness and your faithfulness and that the world may not understand why any of us would come together, Lord, but that in you we have this common ground, God, that you would be glorified in us. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness and your truth and pray that you would help us to be the people you have created us to be. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.